All right. Uh, good morning, church. Uh, good morning, Reach Montreal. And yeah, today we're going to be continuing our series in Judges. And so far, as we've kind of already looked at it, it's it's been a really, really heavy series. And as I was reading the passages this week, so we're focusing on Judges chapter 6 to 8, and I guess kind of more famously known as the story of Gideon, I was really disturbed um, by a lot of things. I've, I've read this story before. Um, I've gone through it in my, you know, yearly Bible reading plans and whatnot. And every time I, I guess I've kind of come to the story, I, I, I've read it too fast or I haven't spent the time that I need to spend into it. And in a kind of like sometimes the sermons or messages that, that are preached where we, we tend to idolize certain people, where when like this out of this whole thing, out of this whole story, sometimes we, we end up making Gideon the hero of the story. But that's what really disturbed me, because I'm not sure how familiar you are with this story. And hopefully, as, as I keep preaching and speaking, that you're going to become more familiar with it. But as I was reading it, I really, really couldn't pinpoint the hero. I was really disturbed. Because it starts in this way where maybe you can even take some encouraging um, or even some positive messages from it. But then as the story continues to unfold, it kind of goes in line with our theme of what Pastor Dustin was preaching about before, that we see in the book of Judges, that there's this continual downward spiral um, for the nation of Israel. And so that really disturbed me as well, is that how, how, could, how can God also use a figure like Gideon um, to, to bring about his purposes when we see at the end of the story what Gideon ultimately was truly worshiping. And so on that note, as I was looking into this, um, it, in, into knowing what to preach about, yeah, I came across some of the more, we'll say, um, you know, kind of self-empowering sermons, right? Where, where speakers would be taking the story and uplifting Gideon where they would also be taking the story and saying, you know, more or less, this is a story about facing your fears, about overcoming your fears and, and being able to, to face them and more or less mustering up enough strength, right, to go and do it, right? That, that, that there's almost this story where we're in the driver's seat or where there's a story where it's it's mostly about us and then God is with us on this journey where it's like we're the ones that are going out and 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 saying as if that we're called to something but really we're out there for our own personal motives and that we take the front stage of the story and we tr- tend to treat God as kind of like the addition to it so that that really disturbed me um, when when I was looking at that, and when I was when I was hearing that potentially that the story of Gideon, that he's this hero where we can say we can face our fears like Gideon did. And so once again, that kind of leads me to it, into saying, are we, are we going to read scripture, or 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 even in when we're doing life, are we going to have kind of this like Christ-centric view of things? Are we going to be saying, God, you know, let your will be done? Are we going to see God as the master and that we get to go along on his journey with him? That wherever God's spirit is, that we get to join with him? Or are we going to say something kind of more popular to our culture today, that I am the master of my own soul, right? That I'm like sailing this ship and that I'm the one that's taking myself wherever I want to go. So is it like kind of this Christ-centric thing or is it this like me-centric? I'm not even sure if that's a word, so I apologize. But is it for his glory alone or is it for mine? And I guess too, I mean, if, if we can be too critical about this story, we also could read it and just simply make Gideon the villain. Where we might think 
where we can basically point out all of the errors that we think that he made and we can read it and say, wow, I can't believe he did this. What was he thinking? Was he not there in the previous verse? But you see, the problem is, <laughs> who are you most like in the story? Once again, is the glory for God or is it for you? When you read this story, do you tend to feel like you're God in it? And therefore that, you know, your decisions are the right decisions? Or instead, do we see Gideon as this broken person that you and I can more easily, that more easily are, that we, that we are more like Gideon and that the errors that he makes are either the same errors that we could make or the same errors that we actually do make, make on a daily basis, just that the circumstances are not exactly the same. So this left me really heavy. I was really crushed and sad because this story truly does highlight how good God is, but at the same time, really how bad that we are. So there's this like, there's this good news, of course, and I think God's character is definitely highlighted here. It's de definitely demonstrated and shown to us. And then also there's this really disturbing part. There's this really disturbing part of the story where, you know, where we get to see um, Gideon's life develop and we get to see at the end of the day what he was truly worshiping. So on that note, it's really easy to kind of divide this, this story of, of Judges from chapters 6 to 8 into multiple sermons. But certainly we don't have time to do that. So this is in my weakness, in my best attempt to try to bring something together um, where we can highlight some key points and some key, um, uh, so, some key moments. So... I'm actually going to start in chapter 6, uh, Judges chapter 6, and I am going to read a little bit. This is the most that I'm going to be reading in one chunk. And so I'm going to read from verses 1 to 16, because if you've never heard this story before, um, which is okay, <laughs> then you'd be really confused if I just keep talking about it. So I'm going to introduce Gideon, and I'm also going to introduce some tensions here. So reading up from the screen is in the ESV. I apologize. I have it in the um, NIV. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of the Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for them, for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to jo Joash, the Abizrite, Ab where his son Gideon was trashing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us 
up out of Egypt. But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. So, sorry for reading so much, and sorry for kind of butchering the pronunciation of some of those other words. They always sound better in my head, but then when I'm speaking them, that's when my tongue just gets twisted and tied. But I do want to introduce some tensions here that we see at the beginning of chapter 6. So, basically... You have the Midianite people um, who were this group that would just come and regularly kind of plunder and just raid the Israel, uh, the, the people of, of Israel. And so there was so much tension and so much fear um, and, and that they were so impoverished and we'd say so um, just oppressed that they couldn't even have cattle, right? Um, that 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 if if they ever had cattle or, or if they were a, ever able um, you know to, to to do that that the Midianites would just come and simply just plunder and take away and kill everything that they have and even to the point of their crops. So we see here already that there is this tension that that the the the, the Midianites right are oppressing Israel. And as and as as we continue to go through it, right, we see once again that that God begins by sending them a prophet, and basically telling them why why what is going on is happening, right? First, he sends them a prophet, so that the word of the word the word of the Lord is proclaimed. And and we see here this is this is also where. There, there, there's this other tension, right? Because we say, like, is is Israel crying out to God because they um, regret basically the sins that they're committing, or are they just are they crying out to God because simply of the consequences, right? Like, like, are they crying out to God because the circumstances are so hard, or are they crying out to God because they have this repentant heart and they want to turn to Him? The crazy thing is here too, right, is that there's something really key to highlight here. And it's that before, like, like there's no sign of the people repenting here, right? They're just crying out to God because of how hard um, the circumstances are, because of how oppressed they are, right? But there's no, there's no sign here of, of them repenting. But before that they even repent, there's something amazing here. We see uh, something about God where he's so kind. Um, the, so I was disturbed by reading through the story of Gideon, uh, just at how the story kind of continues to unfold. But there was one thing as well that really stuck out to me, and that was God's kindness and his patience in this. And really just how good he is, right? So so that that is the opening scene, and then God is already out there working out his plan of salvation for the Israelites. So like, so like before anyone has even repented, like he tells them why they're going through these things. He reminds them of, of, of the covenant, right? He reminds them of what he told them. He reminds them of who he was. So he tells them how he saved them, right? And really then this shows how he's continuing, that he will continue to save them. But there's something really key here, that, that God reaches out to save them before they even repent. And that really shows the goodness of God. And so I am going to read from Romans um, chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. This is what I have here as well. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so that's something like really key and really important, even to what the character of God is like. 
and just how merciful and gracious that he is that even when we're living in a way that doesn't honor him, right? That Christ is still pursuing us and that he is still working out his salvation, that he is, 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 is working to save us before we've done anything, right? And that's, and that's really key because that, once again, that takes the emphasis from us, that removes it from self, and that places it on what God has done. And that's in, in, in a way that we cannot boast about anything, of course, because we're saved by what Christ has done, right? And that we're saved because of his goodness, like by his goodness, and not because of anything that I could ever muster up on my own. And that's really hard, right? Because we tend to think in kind of religious ways or moral ways where it's like, you know, God will save me if I can kind of prove my worth first. Or God will kind of like bless me um, because I've already been this good person. But here we see, um, once again, where you have the character and the nature of God and what he's like. And then, of course, in contrast uh, to what to what man is like. So, so that's that's like the first part of the story of Gideon, right? Um, where once again there's these tensions, um, and and then we see Gideon introduced. So God goes to Gideon, and there's there's this really interesting part too, right? Um, where God calls Gideon. I believe it says in the ESV, you know. He appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, uh, O valiant warrior, right? O mighty warrior. But as you continue to read on, right, even even it goes even into verse 15. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family, right? And and, and there's this weird thing because as as you read through it right there's there's the maybe the the miracles um that are kind of like more well known um throughout the story is that Gideon is certainly not a mighty and valiant valiant warrior right but instead God is like speaking it and God is telling him that he will be because of his strength instead once again, like there's this difference of not making, we'll say, Gideon the emphasis of the story, but rather it's what God is doing through Gideon, right? And so I want to go to the next part, right? Now we're gonna we're gonna kind of like jump um, to chapter seven, and 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 I'll try to fill in the gaps as much as I can as well, right? Um, of once again, where's the where there's this this part of the story where where once again, we, we, we think we're doing things in our own mights, right? In our own might. But throughout the story as well, Gideon is gaining confidence. But back once again, sorry, back to chapter six, you, you see where God tells Gideon to go after that encounter to go and destroy um, this, this idol, the, the Baals, right? And so God calls him to go and destroy that idol. But Gideon does it at nighttime because he's afraid of the people of the town. So we still see the story of this kind of scared, um, scared and, and almost like this not courageous Gideon. Okay. So I'm going to go, I'm going to read chapter seven, verses one, one to seven. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all of his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So, 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told them, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 
Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouth. All the rest of them got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. And then so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So once again, like this is a really, really um, kind of like mind blowing experience or even this this strategy that doesn't seem to align um, with any anything that we would think of doing. Right. So Israel is already this, this nation or this people that's oppressed right now. And the Midianites are this really strong and powerful force that go, uh, you know, seasonally to go and plunder and, and destroy everything that they have. And so as Gideon, you know, in this story, he starts to gain, we'll say, confidence. Um, you know, in the previous chapter, I didn't unpack that part, but it's the famous story of the, the fleece and on, you know, the wet fleece on the dry ground and then the, uh, the dry fleece on the, on, the, on the wet ground, right? And so Gideon, Gideon is starting to say, okay, wow, I'm, I've, I'm having these signs and, I, and I'm, I'm starting to see that God is here, is, is with me, right? So when he goes and he assembles, um, you know, as, as big as an army really that he could, right? And so he has, um, you know, a total army of, of 32,000. But then this is really crazy because God tells Gideon that your army is too big. And, you know, basically, I, I believe uh, like I, that it's almost that the, the Midianite army was, was roughly, I think, 10 times bigger, right? And, and you would think that, well... I mean, the army that's going to win is going to be mostly the biggest, like some kind of skill involved as well. But you would have to say that Israel is already simply being at 32,000 is severely, severely outnumbered. But God tells him that your army is too big. So this is where like a part of the story that maybe potentially human logic kind of goes with God's logic there, right? Because basically God says, you know, to sift these, this, these kind of this first round of people, like tell the people that are afraid to go home, right? And we know that this, this fear would be this kind of like contagious thing. And so if there's like, if there's 22,000 men that are afraid and are going to run at the first sight of battle, I mean, I don't know, maybe there isn't really a point to go and do that. So maybe Gideon is kind of sweating at that point, right? Where he's thinking like, okay, oof, okay, reducing the army by 22,000. It's like, all right, God, I, maybe I can kind of understand because, well, you want the best fighters to be left with us. Like, God, you're going to deliver us um, with the, our choicest and finest fighters. And the ones who are cowardly and afraid, you're just telling them to go home. Sounds good. Sounds good. So, so we're going to go out and, and do this. But then there's this like extra thing that happens where um, the army is reduced even further, right? But God tells him the reason, right? He tells them that 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 basically that if <laughs> if he doesn't do this, that they're gonna think that they were saved by their own hands, right? So he goes to them, he tells them he how to basically reduce the number to 300 that there were some they went down to the water to drink so you know if you you know cupped it with your hand and, and drank from your mouth um, versus if you knelt down uh, and basically kind of like stuck your whole face or head in into the water to drink water right and then God chooses the 300 of, of the men who, who who lapped with their hands this is really really crazy. I think at this point, Gideon must have been like, what is going on? How are we going to defeat this great, vast, powerful army of the Midianites with 300 men? And so at this point, I think Gideon is starting to realize that if God is, is who he says he is, and God has shown him that many times with, with a lot of kind of the signs where God is gracious and patient, where Gideon, where Gideon's like, come on, God, like, I want to believe, but help me believe. 
but is wondering how is he going to be delivered um, from the hand of the Midianites here, right? With only 300 people. And that really, really emphasizes certainly that it is, they are not, Israel is not going to be saved by their own strength. But rather, it's going to be God who saves them. It's going to be God who delivers them from the hand of Midian. And that is something really powerful that in, in reducing the numbers, right? Like imagine that as kind of like a success pitch to someone in, about anything where it's like, well, you know what? Um, I don't think I should earn this much money. Um, I'm going to give more of it away, right? I'm going to reduce my more or less my strength and my empire. It's like, I'm going to be, I'm going to live in a weaker state, right? Like you wouldn't see people do that as, as we continue to live today. And certainly in our culture, we're always telling each other, like, just go out and get it. Like you deserve this. You deserve that. Build up your empire. You need this next thing, right? But here we're seeing that there's that in, in this story, the precursor to success is becoming less and lesser, and minimalizing and minimizing things, right? And reducing the size of our power and our might. And I think that's, you know, basically, right? Where we're starting to get to the main point of what is going on here in this story. As I was reading this, I was, I said earlier, I was so disturbed because I couldn't figure out who the hero of the story was for lack of a kind of like better word. But one, but but and I also didn't really know what to do with Gideon himself. I was like, is he kind of like a heroic man? Should we be like, good job, Gideon? Like, this is real good what you're doing here. But the real point here <laughs> that 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 it begins, that scripture begins to highlight, right, is that we're actually here in this story, certainly the anti-hero. Like God is the hero and we're the anti-hero. And God is warning them. He already tells them in chapter 6 why the Midianites are, are oppressing them, right? Um, that they're not, they've forgotten who God is and they're not serving him and they're serving these false idols. And here as well, there's this really dangerous thing where we, as just people, right? Um, and I guess even that there is a hyperlink back even to the garden, right? of how we live as our own self-autonomous selves and that we um, that we are the ones who want all the glory for ourselves. In this story, there is the tension with the Midianites, but there's an even larger tension. That larger tension um, in this story is that, that the glory of God, that we are competing, we are competing with the glory of God and that we ourselves that even though God is the one who is uh, writing this is really is 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 bringing this story along there's this constant um just tension and this constant fight of having ourselves come out with the glory on top of it right and I mean I, I guess that can play out in, in in many other ways too right like even in our life um where we we actually you know live for our own glory i came across uh, this quote this week uh by charles spurgeon and and in this message of kind of like warning like younger christians don't go into ministry to save your soul don't go into ministry to save your soul we 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 have this tendency, right, of thinking that the glory belongs to us, or that we ourselves are kind of building up our own kingdom, and that and that we can, you know, get God's acceptance, or we could um, get God's approval based on what we do. But then once again, we're constantly taken away from the glory of God and, and of Christ and what He's done for us, and so. Church, like I am more afraid, I am more weary of success than I am of my weakness, right? And then, and I say that even now, right? Like as I'm preaching right now, um, <laughs> in preparing this week, there's always so many ups and downs. And every time, like even when I when I when I get you know the privilege and, and the opportunity to preach, I forget everything, <laughs> almost what I know how to do. 
And that especially leading up to the sermon, and even the start of the sermon, like I'm just feeling sick and I'm just feeling nauseous. But that was actually a great encouragement, almost in this upside down way, is that as I prepare and I'm feeling sick and nauseous, I'm thinking, great, this is good because if I'm weak, then 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 Christ, then then I can't possibly get the glory for what for whatever is going to unfold. Like I can't take the credit because I'm reminded that I'm weak. And so church, when was the last time that we've even had that posture to even say, God, don't basically like give me more and more and don't build my kingdom or my empire. Don't give me more followers on Twitter or Instagram. Don't give me this like um, (laughs) intense, like just um, popularity, but God make me like smaller, like humble me, give me a heart of humility. So that when people hear of me or hear about me, that I'm this just like footnote all the way at the bottom and that the story is really about you and that I get to be with you in this story, but as a part of your family. Like when was the last time that we have ever prayed to God not to give us more, but maybe to give us less, right? And, and that's, and that's the crazy thing too. Like God is trying to protect us even from ourselves. Like sin is this really deceitful and wicked master. Um, and, and us in going out and and sometimes even conquering these things and saying, you know, and elevating ourselves, um, is that we're really, what we're really doing is that we are affirming the idols that are in our hearts. And we're going to kind of go to that a little bit more. Um, towards the end. And so next I do want to read, and I, and I take this, I take this from uh, Paul here in second Corinthians um, chapter 12, verses eight to 10. Uh, I think that may be up there um, on the screen uh, as well, but it says here um, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Wow, that is so powerful (laughs) in the sense that at the same time, it's so weak. But that's the amazing thing is that, you know, like... Like this story is about God and even for me in living my life, right? Like let God get the glory, right? And not me. Let me decrease and let him increase, certainly, right? Because that is the place that he rightfully has. But we ourselves, we go around parading and thinking that we are the masters of our own destiny and fate and soul. um, And that we end up making this idol or making these things in our own image, right? And, and that's, and that's a terrible thing, a terrible thing to do, right? So let's boast in our weaknesses, um, and not be bragging about our strengths. And so as the story kind of goes, and now we're going to continue here in Gideon, as, as the story goes, there's this, almost this other part where we even see like Gideon's weakness at the beginning. And then, and, and then Gideon, you know, of course, God is, is there with him, that his confidence starts to grow. But the thing that his confidence starts to grow um, <laughs> for his own almost like personal advances, right? And as the story goes on, there's a sad tension where you see he begins to forget more and more about who he is and who God is. And he starts to elevate himself. There's this like shift in the story. So Gideon, right before this moment, there's this like other miraculous thing that happens where Gideon is so afraid um, that God's like, okay, now with the 300 men, go. I've given, I've given the Midianites into your hand. You're going to go um, and you are going to defeat the Midianites and you're going to free Israel from, the, from their oppression. But he tells them, like, listen to how gracious God is. He tells them that um, if Gideon, if you're, but if you're still scared, like I've just told you to go. Like there's been all of the other miracles that have happened previously in the other chapters as well. But if you're still scared, if you're still not convinced, go down, take your servant and go into the camp of the Midianites and over here and see what they're going to be saying. And so there's this amazing thing where a guy is just like sharing a dream with his 
with his friend in the camp, right? Um, with his, 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 his fellow soldier in the camp of this weird dream that he has, or this loaf of barley comes and like, kind of like turns over the tents and they collapse. And, and, and then literally you have someone beside him tell, tell him exactly, right? Like God gives him these words and says, well, surely it is like Gideon, the son of Joash. Like this is Gideon. Who's that basically the Lord has given the Midianites into his hand. Like that is coming out of the mouth, okay, of like Israel's enemies. And at that point, Gideon's like, wow, God is actually completely, he's with me. Like that is just the craziest thing I just heard. And he goes back and then he, he prepares his 300 men with these pots of clay and these trumpets and he breaks them and he has like torches to make it seem like that he's this like bigger army, which is, which is an amazing uh, part of the story. So what what ends what ends up unfolding right um, is that everyone scatters. Uh, the Midianites get confused and they start attacking themselves. He went at the change of the guard and it's nighttime and surely God is the one that <laughs> that brought the victory uh, to them. That it was even the Midianites that struck down themselves and that was all because of God's hands, right? But I want to say that there's there is a shift, right? So I'm going to read quickly from Judges uh, 7, verse 17 to 18. This isn't up on on the screen, but watch me. He told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. <laughs> Verse 18, for the Lord and for Gideon. That is where the story starts to make me even more uncomfortable. And if you go back and if you go back and you read it, I find that so strange that after all that Gideon has been through, after all the times where he's been shown that he's weak, <laughs> where he's from the weakest tribe, <laughs> and, 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 and where he says that his, his house and his family is the least in that least tribe, where there's all these episodes where he lacks courage, when he goes to face the battle, what comes out of his mouth is, for the Lord and for Gideon. And that's strange, right? Surely you would think that at this point, he would simply be on his knees praising and worshiping God and saying, for the Lord, this is all you're doing. I have no credit to take in this because I am weak and I lack courage. But from that point onward, God is almost like mysteriously absent. Maybe not mysteriously, on purpose. He is absent from the rest of the story. It's almost like from the time that Gideon like utters that from his mouth for the Lord and for Gideon, it really starts to show what was what Gideon was truly worshiping, right? As it continues to go on in chapter seven, um, the Midianites flee. They're like attacking themselves and they're running for their lives. They're really scared at this point. And there's this tribe, um, the tribe of Ephraim, right? Um, where where basically they go and they continue the pursuit of the Midianites. Like Gideon is at this point kind of taking things into his own hands. He's like, okay, guys, they're scattered and they're fleeing. Now I'm going to call on these people to come and help and these people. And then all of these problems kind of arise from it. And they go and they're able to pursue the Midianites to the point where they kill their princes. And Gideon has an encounter with them and they're really mad at him. And they're like, oh, why didn't you invite us to partake in this, right? And once again, you see the problem is not only with Gideon, but with all of Israel, because they're the ones that want the glory as well. The, the tribe of, of, of Ephraim, the Ephraimites, right? Like they want, they wanted to have a say in the glory, right? But surely we know that, that, that God is the one that delivered them. And Gideon gives us really kind of like massage and smooth political answer and says, well, how does my tribe compare to yours? Like the glory is to you because God gave you the princes of Midian, right? And Gideon walks away and he kind of kind of quells their anger. But we see here, right, that, that this isn't actually true, okay? Because chapter 8 is by far the most disturbing and darkest part of this whole book. Well, well not of this whole book, but of this whole story, right? Because at that point you see very clearly that Gideon is actually in this conquest for his own glory. 
So he says that to the Ephraimites, but he doesn't actually mean it. And if he truly had grasped what God was telling him and God was continually teaching him and God had continually revealed, he would certainly know that it's true, that the glory does not belong to him. But instead, he becomes obsessed with his own glory and realizes that from the story of Gideon as it stands right now, like if the story ended here, then we could end the story, we'll say with a positive note in saying that God delivered the Israelites from the hand of Midian through Gideon. And that the emphasis would be on God and not on Gideon. But from this point, because he has none of the glory, he starts going out and getting the glory for himself. He goes and he pursues the kings of Midian and the rest of their really sizable army with the 300 men, right? And it's weird because like all of a sudden he's not lacking courage. It's like he's lacking courage to do the things that God calls him to do. But then when he's on his own personal conquest, he's like all for it. Like he is going at it at top speed. He pursues the kings of, of Midian. So that in the story that there can be something that points to Gideon's greatness. Because as the story, like I said, it ends. There's nothing that Gideon has in his hands where he can say the glory or the honor is mine. But in pursuing and tracking down the Midianite kings, and, and he basically goes on to, yes, he, 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 he catches them and he kills them. And on his way, he's made fun of. He stops in two, uh, two Israelite towns, right, where he asks for bread and he's like, my men are in this aggressive pursuit. Can you give us rest and food? And they laugh at him and they're like, well, who are you, right? Like, I don't, we don't know who you are, Gideon, like... What have you done, right? Like the Ephraimites, like they, they got the princes, right, of Midian. But who are you? Like, do you have the kings in your hands right now? Like, no, we're not, we're not going to help you here. Um, Gideon makes these personal kind of like promises that he's going to go back and flog one town and kill the rest of the elders and men in another town and completely destroy it. And so I'm going to read here from Judges um, 22 to 25, right? Um, and this is where it does become tragic. <laughs> so the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor my, nor my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request that each of you would give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, We'll be glad to give you them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring into the, from his plunder onto it. And so, that is like... That is really something, right? We see once again that the emphasis there is on Gideon, right? And it's almost like in this, in the rest of this narrative where Gideon pursues the Midianite kings, where he kills his own fellow Israelite, Israelites, right? And where he, he goes beyond what, whatever God had told him or even commanded to him. Like I said, God is absent from the rest of that part. And what Gideon ends up accomplishing is that he brings himself... Basically, right, he makes himself the savior of the story. Now he gives this answer here and you think, oh, well, he says, um, you know, I will not rule over you, um, nor my son. Um, the Lord will rule over you. But that is something that is just so dishonest, right? Like that is some like religious nonsense. Like Gideon knows the right thing to say. He has this almost like head knowledge, I guess, of God. But it does not translate to the heart. And what he says is just a flat out lie. Because he says, well, no, you know what? Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to rule over you. God is your king. But in the next, literally in the next, what, whatever proceeds and in the next verses, he then asks for a cut of the plunder. Like almost this royal cut of the plunder. Where it's like, he asks for everyone to give an offering to him and to his greatness so that he has this royal cut. And so he's not being honest, right? And it gets worse, right? 
it gets worse. So what, what Gideon does with this gold, and this is where it's like you see truly what he was worshiping all along. What he does with this gold is that he makes an idol <laughs> right where <laughs> right where the story began. Like the story begins and God calls him and he tears down the idol. But as the conquest continues to grow and the story becomes more about Gideon, what he ends up doing is creating this idol creating this idol in his in his own image that he begins to rival with God for the glory and for the worship. And in having this idol that he creates, it's like, once again, he's competing with God for the glory. And so the conclusion of judges is pretty, huh? It's pretty, well, pretty heavy, right? Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah, his town, Ophrah, his town, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And I read in verse 33, no sooner had Gideon died, had Gideon died that the Israelites again began, prostit- began again prostituting themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith, as their God, who, and did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, Gaz, Gideon, for all the things he had done for them. So, this is like a really kind of sad ending to the story. And it's that by the end of the story, we, we at the beginning we start with the Midianites oppressing Israel. At the end of the story, we have the Israelites oppressing Israel. You have Gideon, who has simply taken the place of the king of Midian. The king of Midian and the idolatry and the wickedness is not destroyed. It's only transformed. Gideon becomes it because he creates this idol Um, He becomes bloodthirsty and that he has more things in common with the king of Midian. But at the same time, he one-ups it, right? He sets up Baal Berith. Like this is like even like a play. This is known as like the Baal of the covenant, right? It's such a distorted view. Instead of like the God of the covenant, like this is like the Baal of the covenant. And it's such a dark and distorted view. And once again, the story of Gideon is him... um, (laughs) In contrast to God, he's trying to amount all the glory for himself. Gideon says at the beginning of verse 22, right, that, you know, I'm not going to be your king. God is going to rule over you. I'm not going to rule over you. But what we see is that that's not true. Like the crazy thing is that Gideon goes on to live this like super powerful uh, and and, and, like king-like life. And he disobeys God in, in almost every regard. He goes, uh, he takes multiple wives, right? Um, he takes um, multiple wives, even from all the surrounding villages. Um, one of his, his, his he has a concubine um, <laughs> from his village uh, of, of Canaanites, right? And he has this son who he names from the concubine, Abimelech. And Abimelech, right? This is Gideon who's named him. Abimelech literally means my father is king. My father is king, right? And so once again, it's this, this tragic story of how, like, basically God is the hero of the story, but then it turns out Gideon is actually the anti-hero of the story. Um, and so, I mean, sorry if that was a little bit of a roller coaster. I know that was a lot of scripture to kind of go at. Um, <laughs> and so uh, hopefully that you're left with something that is, you know, encouraging in that as well. But I guess it's also sobering, right? Because, you know, in our life as well, um, as we go out as even as the church or even in our everyday things, like how much time do you actually spend praying about things? How much time do you actually spend um, being before the Lord on, on decisions that you have to make? And, and how much time do you spend reading his word? And, 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 and when was the last time that you've ever prayed to God, right? That you would be made less and that he would be made more. Because the problem is like Gideon, sometimes what we even think that we're doing, even we can think that we're doing something for God. 
but really we're only doing it for ourselves is that we're doing things for God because maybe it benefits us in the short term. Maybe it gives us some good things, uh, some, some maybe a good blessing or two and whatnot. But in the end, we're actually only in it for ourselves. And that we <laughs> truly, truly, that we want to live as our own master, right? So, church, I guess uh, just, just to end, um, don't be... Don't be rattled, per se, by your weaknesses, um, but rather, like, like, like have this, this, this heart and this spirit of humility where you want the glory to be for God alone. Um, and so, in a way, rejoice in your weaknesses. I know this is upside down, right? Rejoice in your weaknesses. And, of course, I mean, repent. Uh, repent in, in the sense of turning to the Lord and allowing him really um, to be our king, that we can serve him, um, that we can be, uh, you know, even on mission to where he already is, right? And that we would ask God and, and spend time asking God, like, where are you? And here I am with whatever weaknesses that I have, but Lord, let the glory be to you um, and equip me, equip me for whatever task that you have for me. Um, so I think at that I'm going to end in prayer. Uh, this was really, uh, interesting and I'd say challenging to preach on zoom because I can only hear myself. Um, and, and basically whatever else is in this, you know, kind of quiet room there's, so, uh, I'm just going to end in prayer and, uh, just going to pray for us. Father, uh, thank you for this day. And I just pray um, that you would take even the weakness that I just have right now. Um, and even that I just spent uh, whatever amount of time um, preaching and opening your word and whatever limited knowledge that I have, Lord God. Um, I just pray that you would take uh, what I have right now, uh, what I've done, that you would speak to the people. That at the end of the day, it's you that's glorified. That people wouldn't be going away from it thinking about me, but rather that they would be highlighting you, Lord God. Um, and that you are the one um, that calls us to things. You equip us. Um, that you give us everything. That we're we're not lacking anything. When you call us to something and we step out into obedience, we're not lacking in anything. You always equip your people. But Lord God, I just pray that we would never make the story about ourselves, um, that we would never um, just take the glory. Lord God, let the glory be for you alone. Humble us, Lord God, and let us instead be like Paul in, in Corinthians and say that, God, I'm, I'm more willing to boast, that I'm going to boast in my weaknesses instead of my strengths that I am going to boast in all of my weaknesses because your power is made perfect in weakness. Because, Lord God, that really shows that we're so much more crooked um, and broken than we even believe or think that we are. That in our own success, that we build these idols for ourselves and that we end up making ourselves the hero of the story. Lord God, protect us and save us from ourselves. And if that means having weakness in our lives, then let it be for your glory. But let not there be anything, Lord God, that would remove us from your presence. We just pray that we would be your people continually and that we would spend time with you, that we would be your people um, at the dinner table with you and your family, Lord God. For I, we as the church, as this church and as your church, we would rather um, in our weaknesses be enjoying you and the presence of you than rather out there building our own kingdom in such a terrible and dark and dark way. So Lord Jesus, be with us this week um, and um, bless us. And thank you for your word. And thank you um, for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.